I wake up and I'm energized. I'm excited. I am looking forward to the day. I'm looking forward to what I'm supposed to do that day. And uh, I feel like doing the art that I'm able to do is really motivating me. Hi, I'm John Lawrence Rivera, and you are entering a world done good. Well, hello, my name's Steve, and this is Amazing May, which means you're here for the second of two new episodes happening on the same day you came back for more, you fool, you good, good fool. Um, You can help us spread the good by sharing our podcast with your friends on social media or just your friends in general when you're chatting them up. Also, we'd love it if you would subscribe to our show on whatever platform you listen to us on. And hey, listen, if you're going that far and you want to go for the gold, give us a rating and a review. All these options help us spread the good and more people find out about us and join the good team. Go team, go! Good team, team good, team... Someone come up with a better name than that. This is as good as I can do at the moment. But as always, we thank you for doing all you do. And we're just glad you're here. I'm just glad you're here. Me. And joining me to listen and enjoy and support. So if you're just coming off the previous episode with Betsy... Oh, I should start this with a spoiler alert. Spoiler alert! She spoke about her time with a little group called Up With People. Well, my good friends, something amazing is about to happen because today's guest isn't just a man who followed his passion, which began, well, I guess the passion part didn't really begin here, but he began at a bank, and then he wound up following his passion to the theater, and then the pandemic hit, and he had to figure out what he was going to do. So he opened his kitchen for free, to his community, every night of the week, basically. During the last year, he created this thing called Flip Kitchen, where he's feeding his neighbors. Um, but there's a little more, again, crap, I should say, spoiler alert, spoiler alert! Someone someone help me, we've got to echo that. Spoiler alert, 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 alert. Um, what's about to happen is that there is a connection yet again to, yep, you guessed it, up with people, and dang it, Something pretty magical happened when we were recording, and hilarious, I have to say. So um, you're going to get to hear it yourself when you listen to today's show with my guest, John Lawrence Rivera, and he's about to tell his good story. So enjoy. John Lawrence Rivera, you have been sent to me. You're my latest victim from Betsy Zyko, who is apparently my, I don't know, my talent booker? (laughs) My agent? (laughs) She keeps sending me all these people because she she's into my I, I interviewed her. She's coming up too, but she keeps sending me her friends and stuff. So you have a very, very um diverse and interesting story to tell. Um, but let's start really, really wide and big and and with a very overall general question. You can think about this. John Lawrence Rivera, what is good? about John Lawrence Rivera? Wow, that is a really hard question to answer because it feels like whatever I say is like tooting my own horn. But uh, I think uh, I think my work with my theater company is something that um, is good because we are 
promoting uh, diverse artists, diverse playwrights, actors, uh, designers, directors. Uh, and we've been practicing that since the beginning, since 1992. So um, I feel like even though right now there is a big, um, there's a big conversation about uh, elevating those stories that are um, usually not seen on our stages that um, we've been doing it for about uh, 28, 29 years. Now, you're quoted as saying, when I wake up, I'm happy because I'm doing what I love and I want to do. I'm loosely quoting you. For many years before I started Playwrights Arena, I was in banking. And um, I was working in a bank for 10 years. And every day was miserable. Every day was just miserable. I would wake up. I'm showering. I'm already unhappy. I put on the suit. I'm already unhappy. I walk into the bank. I'm already unhappy. And all I'm looking is that five o'clock hour so I can leave the job. But, you know, it, it gave me some financial security, which was the only thing that was good about it. And I realized um, after a while that that kind of financial security is not really what's making me happy. And, um, and so I left the bank and I started uh, Playwrights Arena in 1992. And, um, and ever since, I mean, I, I really feel like I wake up and I'm energized. I'm excited. I am looking forward to the day. I'm looking forward to what I'm supposed to do that day. And uh, I feel like doing the art that I'm able to do is really motivating me. And yes, the money sucks in theater, especially in small intimate theater, but uh, it really does energize me. And I feel like that kind of energy and that kind of, um, of just peace of mind is, is so much better than just knowing that, you know, there's a paycheck coming in next week. But I just feel like the, 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 the difference between the two is really uh, I gained so much more just being happy about doing what I'm doing. You were um, born and raised in the Philippines. Uh, yes, I was. Uh, we came in this country in 79. Um, we left the Philippines in 75 because my father, um, who passed away about seven years ago, um, was a, a journalist in the Philippines. And uh, he was against the Marcuses, so he had a whole, his own his own magazine and his articles, and and, and it was very much anti Marcos uh, uh, publication. And so when Marshall was implemented in seventy two, he was blacklisted and uh, couldn't get a job. Um, and so about a year or so after that, he got a political asylum status in Sydney, Australia. So he went to Sydney, Australia, and started working there and. In '75, we followed um, followed him there, and and we lived there. I finished high school in in Sydney, Australia, and uh, I started working. Uh, I started studying with um, with an acting company there. Um, and then in '79, we had a, this opportunity to come to the United States, and because I really wanted to pursue something in theater, I decided we decided as a family that uh, we should come to the to, to the states, and we've been here since. Do you remember like what that was like? You were 15 when you moved to Sydney. What was that like moving to Sydney? Did you speak English? Yes. Uh, so, you know, in the Philippines, we, our, uh, uh, when you go to school, our, uh, all of our classes are taught in English. So 
you know, we were already speaking, uh, we were very fluent in, in English already. And uh, um, so when we went to the, to, to the, to Australia, it was, it was, you know, it was, we were a little traumatized by it uh, only because we were leaving, you know, you're 15 years old and you're leaving all of your friends, all of your high school classmates, uh, everything that you've been familiar with all your life. And I know, we knew that we were going someplace that was going to give us a better life, but you know it the the you know severing that kind of um, uh, friendship was really hard and uh, and this was all before you know before Google before we had like you know Gmail and we had email so you know we left we left and we came to the United to uh, to Sydney Australia and it was. Uh, it was a, a big change, you know. First of all, they drove it a different side of the road, and uh, you know, and we had to make a lot of a lot of adjustments, uh, you know, uh, living there. But uh, but it really, you know, it really uh, gave us a lot of opportunities. I finished high school there, and uh, and we, you know, we started a, a whole set of friends over there. And actually, by my sister and and myself were part of a folk folk arts dance group, so we. We were very involved with the Filipino Australian community, dancing, uh, you know, in different events, uh, you know, with a with a folk arts group. Now you joined a group as well called Up with People. Yes. In what capacity did you join? Because I think Betsy Zyko told me she also was with Up with People. <laughs> I mean, you know, years later when I met when I met Betsy for the first time, I mean, the, the connection was wait a minute. You were in Up With People? I'm in Up With People. So, uh, yeah, I traveled in Up With People in 81, <laughs> in 1981 and 82. And um, uh, uh, I was already here in the United States. We arrived here in 79. And uh, uh, and I had this, uh, you know, a friend of mine, I was working for a, for a law office when I first came to the United States. And uh, uh, one of the uh, people working at the law office said to me, my brother is in town. He's performing in a show called Up With People. Will you come with me? And I said, yeah, sure. Okay, I'll go. So I went. And I was really inspired by the message of the of the show. And so after the show, they said, whoever wants to travel with us, you know, we're, we're looking at, uh, we're recruiting people and we're interviewing people over uh, on this side of the stage. And so my friend said, I have to wait for my brother. So if you want to interview, you should go and interview. So I interviewed and three months later, I got this letter saying you've been accepted. So I traveled uh, that summer from 1981 to the following summer in 82. So yeah, it was a, it was a life changing experience for me. And what were you doing in Up With People? You were on the stage, you were singing and dancing, you were part of the performing? That is correct. So I was, I was singing, I was dancing. I was mostly featured dancer, uh, but I did sing the, the theme song of Up With People uh during before the intermission (laughs) come on give us no give us a little a little taste is there come on oh my god (laughs) well it happened just this morning as i was walking down the street so it's like anyway so that's the beginning of it you know um so i would i would do that and i think you know mostly they they asked me to do it because first of all it's it's a simple song to sing and also, you know, they're trying to be as as culturally diverse as possible. So, you know, this Filipino kid, they were like, okay, let him sing up with people. You know, I mean, so that was that was part of it. But you know, I mean, and it's so interesting. I had a I had a mustache at, uh, 
when I was, you know, when I was um, 81, 20, 21 years old, I was growing a mustache. And so I never shaved it because I would always dance the La Bamba because they would put me into the La Bamba song when they when we do the international medley. So as even though I'm Filipino, I look Mexican, so I would dance the La Bamba. And I was so afraid that if I shaved it off, they would never ask me to, they would never ask me to dance La Bamba. So I never shaved it the entire time I was traveling. You were brown enough. I was brown that enough. Was like, you're, right. you're close enough to do that. So let me ask you this about Up With People. You are a Filipino-Australian-American. What did the message of Up With People sound like to you? Was it just insane, kooky, corny, or is it something you were inspired by? I'm not making no, fun of absolutely. Up With People. No, no, I'm no. Asking. And that's a very good question because I, I even now I have friends like, wait, wait a wasn't that a cult? I mean, it, and you know, I mean, it has that cultish quality to it. <laughs> you know, I mean, people do. I mean, I have a, I have a, a very, very good friend, and his, his, his partner would always say, "Oh yeah, these are the, these are the people who travel in that cult up with people." But you know, uh, uh, to me, it's interesting because, because I think each individual that went to up with people, they gained whatever they want to gain out of it. You know, so I felt like I went in there with the idea of uh, really embracing the diversity of the cast and really learning from from all the different cultures. You know, because we went to we went to seventy different cities, which means that which meant that we stayed in seventy different host families. And every time we went to each family, I mean, you you do learn their custom. And you know, we went all over sweet uh, all over Scandinavia. So we spent three three months in Scandinavia. So we went all the way to the Arctic Circle. And so, you know, you get to experience. Like, the first time we went we went to Scandinavia, our, our, we landed in Finland. And my host my host dad said, let's go to the, to the sauna. So I said, oh, great. So, I, you know, sauna to them, especially in, the, in January when it's so cold. It's like something that they all, they go. So I go, and all of a sudden I'm going, and the mother, the daughter, the brother, I like, we were all in the sauna, sitting there naked with it, like, and there's like, there's just no, you know, there's no body shaming whatsoever. They just like all undress and they sit there. So here's this Filipino kid that's never been really naked with anybody at 21, and all of a sudden I'm sitting with a family of six people and we're all naked in a sauna, you know. And so there's a lot of that. I I am loving this. <laughs> and so there's a lot of these kinds of, of of. I'm loving this for a reason. <laughs> Why? I'm loving this for a reason. I'm going to tell you why. Because Betsy Zyko said the exact <laughs> same thing. The exact same thing. Oh my god! And we, she and I have never spoken about the sonic incidents, but it is. I mean, it's like it's just it's oh just god. something that we never really, you know. I mean, we just don't do. I mean, we don't do that necessarily, you know, growing up and. And sauna to us is like a you go to the gym and you go to the sauna, but at home you just go right down and you know it's like so it's been a that was a really you know uh, wild experience and you know and as we go north to like um, the Arctic Circle, I mean people literally would go out into the snow and then go back into the sauna, you know, because that whole like getting cold and then back into the heat, it's like something that does something with their skin. But I'm just like. Wow, this is really quite remarkable. And you know, I mean, we, and 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 because the families were were so um, var- varied that 
sometimes I would live and, you know, they're really in, in a poverty situation. And then sometimes I would stay in a house like in, 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 um, uh, in Chicago. And the house that we had was like this house from, you know, it looked like from ordinary people. I mean, it was just like this huge house and, you know, and so you get the extremes of everything. And, and it was, it was really a, a, quite an experience. This podcast should just be called Sponsored by Up With People. <laughs> <laughs> Obviously, it had an effect on you. And, and you were talking about falling into the world of banking. What was the moment when you were like, I need to leave? I'm not following my path. What was that moment like? And was there a, was there a specific moment? There is a specific moment because I, uh, I remember, uh, uh, you know, I was working for for a ba- for the bank for about ten years, and I realized that um, even though I don't really have uh, an education in in banking, that if you work really hard, you do get promoted. So I started as a teller, and then I st- and then I became like a, a a manager of a department, and then I became assistant vice president. So in the course of ten years, it was like you know you keep building this career, and so there was a moment. And at this time, um, you know, as soon as five o'clock was done, I, I go into rehearsal. So I was having this dual life of working in a bank in a corporate world and then going into a nonprofit small theater directing a show. And I and that's really what I wanted to do. So I realized that at the point that I left the bank, that if I didn't leave it at that point, the money was going to be too good. And the, you know, the, the support is going to be too great that I couldn't just like walk away from it. So I thought if I wanted to leave, I needed to leave at that point that I left. I said, I need to leave now. So what I did was I planned for it. I, I saved enough money for like to live for three years if I didn't have any other income. So I, I saved a lot of money for a while. And, uh, and then I, I, I said, I would leave the bank now. I will give myself three years to do theater full time. And if it doesn't work out, I know that I can always come back either into banking or some, uh, some other field. But what I wanted to happen for myself is that I wanted to know that I had given it my all and that I made the effort. And so that even if I failed and I didn't get a job ever and didn't do anything with theater after that, that later on I could say, yeah. I made the effort. I tried it. I made the thing. So, so I left the bank, you know, and that was almost 25 years ago. And I've never got, I've never turned back. I've never gotten any other jobs except for, you know, theater or something that's related to theater. You know, I've, I've taught at USC and teaching directing over there. So, you know, other than that, there's really been, you know, I have never really ventured out of the theater since I left uh, the bank. You started the Playwrights Arena in the 90s. Were you still at the bank when you started it? I, I was, yeah. I was still at the bank uh, in 92, I think. Uh, it wasn't until about 95 or 96 that I completely left the bank, you know. Uh, but, uh, uh, yeah, I was still, I was still doing some, some banking at that point. And what was the decision to open the Playwrights Arena? Was this your own idea? Did you team up with some other people? How did it play out? I started Playwrights Arena by accident, actually. Um, 
I was producing a play. I was producing a play called Carla, with uh, which starred Elizabeth Shue, and um, and we wanted to name uh, a uh, you know a company for the production. It was just a one-off, and so I came up with a name called Los Angeles Playwrights Arena, Lapa, and so we presented that play as as uh, as Lapa, uh, and then two weeks into the production, uh, the LA riots began. And um, I remember my co uh, my co producer at the time. We we walked out of the theater and and the theater was on Sunset and Western. And we came out and literally there was fire everywhere. There was like you know loot, looting and stuff, things like that. And so while while this was all happening outside of the theater, I turned to my uh, my co producer and I said, "You know what the city really needs is uh, is to have." is to really celebrate the diversity of the city and therefore creating something that will unite all of us. And because I'm in the theater, I thought, you know, what we should do is keep uh, at that time, again, it's Los Angeles Paris Arena as a place where uh, all these diverse stories can be celebrated and can be lifted up and given space and all of that stuff. So that was the beginning of it. So, you know, we, that was uh, April. Uh, that was like yeah, um, the end of March um, of uh, 1992, and the following year we found uh, a space uh, on Pico, and we started producing theater, and we dropped the Los Angeles part of it. So now it just it became Playwrights Arena, and it really it was always intended to um, to work with uh, local playwrights because I felt like. As a director, I love having the playwrights uh, with me in rehearsals. And if we were producing somebody from, you know, Chicago or London or New York, it's so hard for them. We don't have the resources to get them out here for like five weeks of rehearsal. So I was very, we were very specific in starting it off with, uh, with just promoting LA playwrights so that they are in the room with us. They are in the, in the, uh, with us during the entire process. and. If anything happens, they're like we're we're just right there and saying, "Oh, what should we do with this scene?" And you know, they're able to like work with it and write and rewrite or whatever. So the pandemic hits, and obviously that has a huge effect on every theater everywhere. I've spoken to several people about this, and some people went online and some people did other things. But you, you created something completely different called Flip Kitchen which I am fascinated by, but I want you to tell everybody what Flip Kitchen is because it is so <laughs> smart and unique and so simple. So the floor is yours. Tell us about Flip Kitchen. Yeah, uh, thank you for asking. Uh, the, you know, when, when the pandemic hit and we shuttered our theaters, uh, yes, we, I missed the productions. Yes, I missed the relationship I had with actors, with our, you know, with, with the, with the artists that I work with. But the thing that really that really hit me the most is that, which I never really thought of until we, we shuttered our theaters, that the relationship I have with my audience uh, after a show, when you're talking to them and you are exchanging ideas and talking about the play, you know, I missed it so much, that kind of interaction. And, you know, with actors coming out and we're all talking and we're all like interacting. So that community part of it was really something that I, I missed so much. So 
when the pandemic started, um, about a month into it, I thought, what am I going to do uh, while I'm at home? You know, and one of the things that came to my mind is that, you know, I um, when I was working and I'm in rehearsals all the time and I'm running a theater, I never had time to cook. And I loved I loved to cook before you know before I started my own theater company. And I thought I should really go and and go back into cooking. And and especially I would love to learn how to cook uh, special dishes that I remember growing up in the Philippines. And so I just started to make some dishes. Like in in April, I started to make and. Unfortunately, none of the dishes are, you know, are meant for like one person. So it's always for like eight people, you know, I mean, the Filipino household, right, right. Always like, you know, it, they're not making it for just one person. So, so I would make, you know, I would make a batch of, you know, adobo or make a, a batch of pancit and I would end up uh, taking a picture and sending it on Instagram saying, I made some adobo who's hungry. And sure enough, one by one, people would like, Oh my God, I'd love to try it. Yes, I, you know, and I would say, if you need any food, if you um, if you have no resources or if you have any work, but if you're hungry and you just want to have it, it's free. You can come because I made it already. So people started to come and uh, and get some, you know, some of the food. And as the months went on, and you know, went on and on and on, it became. Uh, sort of like a, a a way where people now are um, they know that if they are hungry and they want some food that they can uh, see what's on the what's on the menu today and they will just come by and pick it up because I would always post the picture and say I made some pancit and uh, and uh, come by and pick it up and what what's happened in the last in the in the year now that we've been in you know in uh, been shuttered is that I've been able to have a sense of community, being able to see people for at least two or three minutes at a time when they come by and pick up the food. So that, to me, sort of like filled in that's that's that lost space of of having communication with my artists and with my audience. So I really love, you know, I mean, I love cooking, but the best part of it is when we're are exchanging with our masks on and six feet apart and leave, you know, and. And just having that conversation of how are you surviving? How are things going? Are you okay? Did you get the vaccine? Is your parents okay? How is the family? Like that little bit of conversation to me was really what was uh, important. And and that they're able to take something home and eat that I created is just an icing on the cake. But I really wanted to have this like moment where we could at least have a chance to to just say hello to each other instead of Zoom or phone calls or you know especially on Facebook where you know you don't really see each other you're just like writing different like messages. So I think that that to me is really the most fulfilling part of it is just having that interaction and that you know because uh, the 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 way that we are uh, communicating with people right now feels like everybody's afraid and wants to just be, you know, through the internet and, you know, seeing each other, we can still be safe and at least have a person to person conversation. Now the people who are showing up, they're your friends, but are strangers also showing up? Oh yeah. Yeah. There's people that actually was like, because they would see my friend's feed saying, I went to, to flip kitchen and got some food. 
And then they will write their friends saying, how did you get it? Where did you get it? And so they'll say, well, you go to this Instagram and, you know, if you want it, just send a message. And, you know, people that I've never met that I knew through a friend would say, hey, I'm a friend of, you know, of Betsy. And uh, I saw that, you know, you're giving up some food. I would really love to try your your vegan pancit. I'm like, yeah, sure. Come over. When can you come? And they'll say, oh, can I come, you know, Tuesday? Yeah. And, you know, we get to exchange again conversation. How do you know Betsy? How did you like, oh, oh yes. Oh, you were, oh, you went up with people as well. <laughs> you know, <whatever. laughs> Is it up with people discount? <laughs> and up with people two for one. I, I think, you know, we should have, we should have something. Yeah. Uh, that's right. You know, if you're up with you, you get two dishes. <laughs> How many nights a week are you doing this? Well, I've been cooking about uh, two dishes uh, a day. So every day I prepare different things, you know. Um, yeah, so I, 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 you know, I, now I'm sort of like obsessed about cooking and making like food for people. And my refrigerator always has now different containers, like just on the ready in case somebody says, hey, I'm in Hollywood right now. Can I stop by? And I'm like, yes. And I can just like pick up something. So I feel like I'm now making enough food like so that people can constantly have it. And what has been great through um, through this pandemic is that people have heard the, uh, the you know, my cooking and, and giving it to people that people have actually uh, given me uh, some financial support. So people would Venmo me some money and saying, you know, some some of my friends like outside of the state would say, I'm in Vermont right now, but I love what you're doing. Uh, here's X amount of money so that you can make food for all, you know, for, for the artists. So, you know, it, it started in April just on my own with my own money and just doing it. And now it feels like, you know, there's there's enough resources that people have been giving, you know, through through the uh, the last few months that really is helping me, you know, pay for the expense. So, so it is not, I, I know I'm the one, I'm by myself in my kitchen cooking, but there's a whole lot of people who've been very helpful. And, and a lot of people refuse to just come in and just get it. So they would always bring something and whatever that might be. So sometimes if they have a lemon tree, they will come in and they'll give me like, you know, a bag of lemons or, you know, or, or they would have like, a bag of flour at home that they don't use and they'll just say oh i don't i hope you can use this so you know it's been it's been that kind of exchange with with people and people have been very generous about you know what what they would like to offer and i always say there is no requirement whatsoever as long as you're hungry and you want it it's here you can pick it up but you know everybody's like oh i don't i want to make you something first also you know i'll i'll cook you a uh, my Korean curry and then I'll send it and then I'll bring it in to get an exchange. I'm like, okay, that's fine. Okay. So this is great. So what is your Venmo? So if my listeners want to support you and want to send you a few dollars, where would they Venmo money to? What's your at at Venmo? Yeah, it's uh, John dash Lawrence dash Rivera. But also they can just go, uh, we have a website now, flip, uh, flipkitchen.org. So if they go to that, they will see a lot of information about, uh, you know, about what we're doing. So they can just always go to that, to that website. Are you going to keep doing this after the pandemic's over? That's a very good question. We're going to go 
really run strong and hard once we open our theaters again, and which will take up so much of my time. Uh, so I'm not sure yet what that what that time frame is going to be like for me, but I feel like there will be some part of it that's still going to function, and maybe it's not as consistent as having food every day. You know, maybe it's going to be uh, you know sporadic, but I don't know what that uh, I don't know what that looks like yet because we're still in this in this pandemic. But as more people get vaccine and as we open up theaters again, and I'm in rehearsals again, and I'm like running a theater and doing all of this, I could, I just don't know. I mean, I I hope that we can continue it. I hope that uh, we can uh, keep providing that I can keep providing food for um, for people um, who are in need. But you know. Who knows? Maybe it'll evolve into the next thing. That's right. So, I mean, I, I, I feel that per- perhaps Flip Kitchen will evolve into something. I mean, I, there, are, uh, there, is, there are several models that friends of mine are talking about that I also was dreaming about. Like, for instance, um, having different nights where I go to different kitchens and I would cook, you know, two or three dishes. And, and people will come and gather and, you know, and they will... Uh, learn how to cook those special dishes and then we will all sit down and eat them. And, you know, again, the sense of community and, you know, for, for maybe, you know, 30 or $40 per person, they will have a three course meal and they'll learn how to cook it. And, you know, and, and again, the, the idea for me is all about having a a conversation. So either I'm cooking and we're all talking while we're cooking and then also talking while we're eating. So it's like a party, you know, and, um, you know, and one friend of mine came over and said, well, maybe we should um, create a way where um, people, because people are feeling really like, I have resources, I just don't want to take food, but maybe I can prepack them and people can buy them and 25% of the profit goes into artists. So, you know, we're, we're, we're considering all of those other options that, you know, that um, uh, are possible. Well, I'm a playwright myself. I co-wrote the book to a musical, and I think there's a musical here called Flip, where we tell this entire story on stage, and then I've always wanted to do this, where you live cook on stage, and then people at intermission like get to eat it. I love it. Act two is when they find out we've poisoned them, <laughs> and they have to figure out who the murderer... We got to get the flip, you know what I mean? We got to really get in there with the... <laughs> I love how your brain is working. I love this. I love this. And it's dark enough. I love it. I love it. <laughs> Let's make it happen. <laughs> so, John, what would you today tell 10-year-old John back in the Philippines? What, did, what would you say to him? Wow. Uh, I think I would say to that 10-year-old kid in the Philippines growing up and uh, – that that you know the possibilities um, are are attainable if you really uh, stay focused. And I feel like as a ten year old in the Philippines, growing up with not a lot of resources, there were many uh, there were many things that that boy was dreaming about that probably he thought that is not possible. So I better have another, you know, have another um, option or other plans. Um, and I think that 10-year-old boy decided to go into banking because 
you know, he didn't really think that theater was going to be something that uh, is something that he can, you know, he can really have a, a life in. So uh, I would just say that, you know, he should really uh, be as focused as possible and obtain whatever he wants to, to do. Well, I have to say you are the example of an American dream in every way. So Thanks. Thank uh, you. you should be very proud of yourself because you're the type of person who came to this country with very little. And look at all you've done. It's truly, truly inspiring and amazing. It's the exact kind of stories we like to talk to, talk about here. And 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 I credit up with people yeah, as your savior. Probably you. um, <laughs> that's going to be my go back to for everything. <laughs> no, it, it's interesting that you mentioned that because it wasn't until I left up with people that I thought whatever I wanted to do, I can do because I was able to join up with people through my own resources. Because you know there was a tuition that we had to raise, and I raised that tuition. And I was able to travel. And so I felt like if I really just focused on something, I could make it happen like I did with other people. So when I left, I felt like that was the best education I got from from that experience that, you know, I can make things happen as long as I just like focus on it and really like, you know, strategically figure out a way to make it happen. And so you know, it, you, you're right. I mean, Steve, you're not, there's no, uh, you're not like, I mean, I know we laugh about it and I even laugh about it, but really, truly, it, it did something to me that really changed the course of my life because I might have still be in the mailroom of a, of a law office or a teller in a bank, you know, and so I think that really pushed me. That is my number one advice that I give all young people. I'm 51. So I give young people always when they ask me, what advice would you give me? What advice would you give me? Not like, believe me, there's not some fucking line out the door going, Steve, Steve, asking for advice. But when I'm asked, I always say the same thing, which is travel, travel, get out of your world, your world on the, your, that little phone of yours and the internet and this five block radius you live in is not the world. Get out there. And I regret that I waited until 37 to take my first big international trip. I just didn't have the finances. It was really about me just finally getting the money to be able to do it. But my God, that's, you're so blessed that as a young age, at such a young age, you got to travel. That's the magic of it. If seeing all these other places and experiencing all these other worlds. Very true. So we're going to wrap this up with the same three questions we always ask. I'm going to ask you, you know the answers, don't get nervous. Question number one, you've already partially answered, but tell everybody again, where can people find Flip Kitchen? Where can people find you um, on any social medias that you want to plug? Plug away. Uh, you can find uh, Flip Kitchen through our website, uh, flipkitchen.org. Uh, you can also find information about me through my theater, uh, playwrightsarena.org. Um, and you can find me on uh, Instagram. Uh, Instagram, uh, Flip Kitchen is flip underscore kitchen. And, uh, and I'm on Instagram, director Rivera. So that's, those are the you know, places where you can find me. I'm also on Facebook. Two more questions. Who inspires you? Wow, I think 
I mean, my primer, my primary inspiration is my mother. Uh, you know, she raised uh, three kids. Um, out, you know, moved them to to Australia and then to the Philipp- and then to United States, and uh, and really gave um, gave us uh, an amazing life uh, over here. So you know, on her own. So I feel like that has always motivated me and has always inspired me because what whenever things are really hard i always go back and say my gosh you know yeah this is hard but you know imagine you know a 40 year old woman with three teenagers coming to the united states and keeping us all together and giving us all education and uh, and a home so i think that's always been a, a great source of inspiration for me And the final question, it's super easy. It can reflect back to anything we've already talked about or anything you want to say. It's really simple. Tell me something good. I think that uh, it's important to have human connection all the time. And I feel like we should all make every effort to, uh, to really reach out. And I think, you know, not only to our friends, but to other people that we may not know and just really just say hello and, and talk to them. Thank you, John, for sharing your good. Check out John's social pages to find out where you can grab a taste of all he's doing with Flip Kitchen. Next time on World Gone Good. So I've never really seen barriers. I'm pretty strong when I want something, I'm going to go for it. And um, God bless the man that stands in my way. (laughs) Or by your side. (laughs) Or by my side. (laughs) Martha and Kurt Van and Wiegen are CBD experts and the owners of Life Elements. They make bath bombs and essential oils and pain sticks that are so good and so good for you. And one of the main reasons is they are loaded with all natural CBD. We are going to have a good time learning about everything from sustainable farming to what the hell THC is. And we are going to get a good non-high on with my guests. I hope you'll join me. Until then, be good.